0: You are welcome to episode eighty something. I'm unclear at what episode we're on because there's so much awesome happening here on the Cloudcast. We are coming to you live from uh, the Cloud Connect out here in Santa Clara. So with me today, um, oh by the way, I'm not Brian Gracely, I'm not Aaron Dell. Once more, this is Amy Lewis at Comms Ninja on the Twitters, host of Engineers Unplugged, and uh, apparently hostily taking over the Cloudcast.net podcast. So I'm here with Lou Tucker. And Dave McCrory, and they're having a great conversation about data gravity and how the network is changing, what the impact is on cloud computing, and we're gonna get to listen in. So, Lou, Dave, introduce yourselves. I'm gonna let you guys take it away.
1: Dave? Sure, so I'm Dave McCrory, I'm SVP of Engineering for Warner Music Group, and uh, I'm also the coiner of the term data gravity.
2: And I'm Lou Tucker, um, VP and CTO of Cloud Computing of Cisco Systems. I just finished the talk trying to tie a lot of these things together between cloud computing, big data, analytics, software-defined networking. So I think if we just would kind of continue where we were going with it. Because data gravity is a term I've also used. So I borrowed that from Dave. You know, And why don't you describe maybe what that is first?
1: Sure. So the, the idea uh, or the concept of data gravity is around uh, data accumulating um, over time uh, by being used uh, by applications and services and when it's used by applications and services it is using them over a network uh, and the applications and services uh, are advantaged by being closer to the data because it's uh, lower latency which means uh, they can get to the data faster and generally it means higher bandwidth which means they can get more of the data at a time. Uh, so. Uh, those benefits uh, have an attractive effect for the applications that want to consume the data. As the applications consume the data, they generally create more data. Uh, and over time, as that massive data increases, it attracts even more applications that are also competing to try and get closer to that data. That's so this is all about moving moving apps to the data.
2: But as, right. But I mean, we were That's saying true. there's there's some limits to that too because the apps actually are not connected to a, a single piece of data. They're actually right. increasingly connected to a, a large number of things across the network. That's right. They're they, they are becoming a complex system. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. So we get back into the entropy discussion and about right. how <laughs> we were talking earlier actually about how, you know, we can relate this to a lot of things in biology and relate it to things in physics. Um, and, and gravity emerges actually out of these, these
1: things. So that's part of your, your whole thesis, right? That's right. And, and. Something that that we're see, that I'm seeing is our incidents of people um, deciding to try and transfer data to an application, uh, and it will be four weeks of data transfer so that they can run a bit of logic for 15 minutes, and uh, it's kind of amazing that you would expend all of that effort transferring four petabytes of data so that you can run a 15-minute operation on it. Uh, instead of simply moving the application logic to the data, right. uh, both are, both are viable, but one is going to take a lot longer.
2: Yeah. If, uh, but you know, also if we look at uh, things like Hadoop and you know Hadoop, HDFS, and, and everything else, we're finding that you know the cl- we want the data to be close to the application. The applications are distributed, and now the data is distributed. So we don't necessarily mean by this notion of data gravity that all the data is going to be consolidated into a single point of singularity. One big machine. Um, We're really talking about just data, the executable content. Actually, back in the early Java days, we were talking about executable content, meaning that what you're transmitting, and even like on a DVD, was an application, not just the end result of the data, the, the video stream, but actually an app that actually could now show you either the, you know, the author's cut or the condensed version or tell the app I've only got 45 minutes and I'd like to see, you know, this, this movie or something. So applications are being tied to data, and that, I think, is, is something that we're we're seeing over and over again.
1: I think, in, I think in traditional, I think in a lot of many, many traditional IT systems, we're seeing uh, that the application and the data were assumed to be so tightly coupled uh, that they became One kind of mass or one thing, and that actually caused a lot of problems, which is what drove us more towards trying to move uh, move things to using restful interfaces and all of these uh, all these other things. The the real cloud scale providers, the Amazons and the Netflix, uh, Netflix and um, the you know pick your poison Azure. Any of these, if you're trying to use their platforms, they actually encourage uh, to use uh, stateless. Uh, Mm -hmm. style of Mm -hmm. applications, and that's what stateless means is that I'm not going to store information um, about each individual user up in the sky uh, somewhere. I'm going to store it locally on the device they're using. So think Mm -hmm. of cookies in your browser Mm -hmm. as the ability to store state locally instead. But that, Um, that means that things I mean, other
2: concepts, pushing things out into the edge. That's right. And this is where we want computation to be pushed out to the edge, and we want data to be pushed out to the edge because as we were talking before, if we were to collapse everything into this hardened little silo or whatever, that's a huge failure, point of failure. That's right. And instead, there, all the resilient systems we see with Netflix and everything else are based upon distributing out the application as far as you can, components of which can be stateless, but also any part of the application actually can, can fail because we know that large-scale systems fail uh, with the rest of the application. So resiliency, I
1: think, is the other, other component of this. I agree that, and that's one of the benefits of following these these patterns. This uh, this stateless, idempotent potent uh, uh, style of, of, uh, of design, uh, and the same thing applies with virtual machines. Um, so, uh, one of the benefits, uh, classically, of things like vMotion has been that you would be able to maintain that state as you move mm-hmm. it across mm-hmm. the network, and you wouldn't get network drops and things. That was the miracle of vMotion at, yep. at, at the time, um, and. Uh, what we're seeing is, at least what, what I see, is that more often than not, um, uh, if new applications are being written, uh, they're being written with different expectations um, than previous. A lot of applications, the expectation was that the system would never go down, ever. What I was running on would always be there and I would always have fast access to the information. Mm-hmm. Those were the assumptions from the beginning. Mm-hmm. That's true with most enterprise IT applications. Mm-hmm. But if you look at what has been done by uh, by the the cloud pioneers, the Facebooks, mm-hmm. the Twitters and such, uh, they don't have those same expectations built into the actual application. Um, they may or may not use virtual machines, but uh, the application doesn't expect uh, instantaneous mm-hmm. response time. It's not synchronous. It's mm-hmm. asynchronous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's something else, but again, that relies and that expects that it's going to be across a network. It's not going to be that singularity.
2: You know, I I also can relate it to a lot of the work that's being done that we're doing like an open stack and in terms of defining a network service, instead of the network being this thing just in the background that somehow miraculously is able to push around our packets and everything else like that where we know there are very hot links. At different points in time, that, that doesn't know how to necessarily respond to changes in the application load, the amount of data. Instead, we're looking at we want to have the same programma- programmable interfaces and even RESTful interfaces into the infrastructure, so that you can start doing things such as you know load balancing as a service, firewall as a service, build them on the same model that we're seeing that's successful in the cloud. These are large, distributed, dynamically scalable, elastic systems that's that's a much better world because it increases simultaneously the resiliency better utilization of the service of the of the underlying resources and at the end contributes to a better user experience and of these applications
0: are you seeing uh, it's very interesting as you talked through some of these examples are you saying the both successes and failures that are happening in the b2c world of cloud being brought back into the conversations you're having yeah. around
2: enterprise? Yeah. I've always I've act, always maintained there's there's fundamentally we we're, we're, we're Two different kind of software architectures that we've been pursuing. One has been sort of enterprise IT, vertically built applications, designed to run on hardened systems and everything else like that. And they serve a small number of employees, your financial services or just your you know some part of your organization. The web architectures have always been built largely on open source, large-scale distributed systems, stateless front ends, being able to design horizontally. And that's the battle that's going on. And I think that it's clear who's winning. Right now, I think it's these large-scale distributed apps who are showing they can outperform, in terms of their resiliency, these attempts to harden uh, something that we've seen in the enterprise and more and more of IT. Um, I think, actually, i give a plug for uh, Jeffrey. Moore has this wonderful analogy between systems of record and systems of engagement, systems of record. He says, we actually solved all those problems with, with the year 2000, you know, or whatever we like, those systems are sort of done. They're only going to grow as fast as the industry. With systems of engagement, which have to do with how are we interacting with our supply chain or network of suppliers, our customers, our consumers, those are growing out of the middle of the organization. And they need IT systems to be able to do that as well. Uh, and then it becomes back to tie back to the whole data gravity. Well, maybe most of your data is now going to be outside of your organization. It's going to be on your, your consumers' cookies. You know, you know It's going to be in these other systems and your suppliers and vendors. And IT now has an opportunity, I think, to, to start to view things from that world so they can run big data and they can do all these kinds of analysis to better understand their, their customers and their supply chains and their systems of operation as well.
1: It's interesting, I think, when we talk about big data, I think one of the problems is that right now people think that big data is the universal answer to everything and that they're going to simply be able to uh, save save their data in a really what's a data warehouse in, in their concept forever and that magically they can send a query to this thing and they can get the answer to any question they have um, and Sadly, I I think there are going to be a lot of failures um, in big data projects because of that. And then I think once that happens, we'll see a maturity in the big data market, Mm -hmm. and they will start to Mm -hmm. – you'll start to realize that there's a difference between data and information, and that yeah. information. A, a, a big difference. And, and do, you,
0: do you see the challenge there as, as a part of the warehousing problem, and the, the fear of failure, and think, again, think about people's implementations for some of these solutions. Do you see that as a fear of failure in the warehouse, or a fear of latency and failure in the, the querying layer? I, I think
2: it's a failure of access. Mm-hmm. I mean, that what you're trying to do is make all parts of the biz- business be able to essentially explore the data that's behind their their business, and therefore, you know, making it so so it's streaming analytics. If you know, if you need to respond in real time, um, it's this much more data, rapid turnaround between data exploration, make an ad hoc query because somebody would like to know how many of my customers, you know, are doing something at the same time. You know, next to the milk aisle, what should the pro- most likely product be placed to whatever, and reduce that cost and instead of being some some trouble ticket that's filed with an IT organization that has to go through review process and everything else. No, you want to just answer that query. And because we see that, we can do that with Google today. I can ask these kinds of
1: exploration questions. It's kind of a data exploration with the goal of information discovery, yeah. where you discover this new bit of information exactly. that, that you're then able to to apply and take some type of action or change some part of your business to now do something differently based on that information you've discovered by going through the data. But it's not just about the data.
0: And, and, Dave, I love your point. I know we've talked about it before. It was a part of your keynote in saying, you know, don't confuse data and information, the concept of information technology, and that data without context is is not as fruitful. And the more distance you put between it, the harder it is to get business intelligence out of it.
1: Well, that's right. And if you think about it... Um, uh, if you lose the context around the data if you even think about a classic relational database if you had no if you had no table definition and you just had a data dump purely just the data that was stored in that database in some big file and you had no context whatsoever you would either manually have to go through the information and try and classify it yourself or do something else. But or you we'll use the shell script, which is <laughs> grep followed by, <laughs> right. by said, followed by something else. to try. And, to and to hopefully, do you can, hopefully you can piece yeah. things back together, but it, right. it's, you just have a lump of data, and that's what a lot of businesses are doing right now. They're just creating these big, huge mountains of data, but... Where where are the things to tie it together and, and it's,
0: it's like digital hoarders. I keep yeah, thinking that, like why is I there not? Think yeah. that, I think
2: that's a great analogy. I feel like every time I buy another, you know, terabyte disk or whatever, just because I I need it,
0: you know. Well, and it's fascinating, like uh, for folks to think about the macro, micro here. That uh, some of the old practices in terms of relational databases that you would use to do web dev, you know, back yeah. in the day. Uh, everything old is the worst new thing again, about it. You know? I mean,
2: so there there certainly is the role and and you know. SQL, actually, there are are languages we want to use to express relationships in data, but that doesn't necessarily mean how we want to implement it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a lot of projects around changing that. Um, The the problem has always been you don't, if you set up a schema, you can only ask a certain class of questions about it. Um, And what we're seeing with all of this unstructured data and you want to do data exploration, now that's different. So you may, behind the scenes, go through, you know, you know, different extraction processes to sort of get the kind of data, you know, views or slices out of out of this information. At the end of the day, you have to be able to respond to somebody who wants to ask a question, and that's where it comes into information. It's
1: not just data at that point. Which is why I think that's why I think we have so many new classes of of ways to store data. It's not purely about being able to have eventually consistent data or transactional versus uh, right. eventual. It's more of Um, a a while back uh, when I was doing a lot of research on semantic databases and we had uh, these ideas RDF. Of, that's right RDF yeah, yeah. stores yeah, I, was, exactly
2: right? I did that for a couple of years and, and, and it's very yeah, much it, right.
1: it, it was very much this that idea That was a little web 3.0 mm-hmm. i'm afraid we're
2: still waiting yeah, waiting it hasn't for that come yet, <laughs> yeah. that's right this is the year right it, it, yeah. uh,
1: but but it's but it's ironic that uh, we do have new ways of storing information outside of relational databases we have key value stores mm-hmm. and all sorts mm-hmm. of other things um, some of the newer things that we're seeing are, are social media pioneers, Google and Facebook and, and Twitter uh, are graphs. They're mm-hmm, applying mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. graphs and, and for the listeners that don't know uh, what a graph database is, think of a think of drawing a circle, a line connecting to another circle. Uh, that's conceptually uh, uh, what a graph database is doing. It's taking a circle with one bit of information. It's creating a link to another bit of information. It's describing all three pieces: the first circle, the link itself, and the other circle. Mm-hmm. I'm simplifying. There are languages, Sparkle, t- and some others
2: that allow us to express or to ask questions of that graph. How many of my friends uh, are, you know, within driving distance of a place where I want to have a
1: party? Or something. And that's what the Facebook graph yep. is, is really doing—is allowing you to traverse a social graph like that. That's where all of these graph terms come from. That's how LinkedIn says you have so many connections in your uh, in your in your social graph, of, uh, and it's why you have secondary and, and tertiary. All of that is based on graph technology. Yep. That, in my mind. Um, gets us a little, one tiny thin slice step closer mm-hmm. to having information with the data and being able to ask really interesting questions that weren't originally planned for when the system was implemented. And that's the, that's the problem with what I call legacy apps, which is really all the apps that all of us have today, everything. Mm-hmm. It, it always had a specific purpose. And anytime you moved outside of that, uh, things fell apart or you couldn't ask your questions anymore. Mm-hmm. Businesses want to ask all sorts of new questions on a daily basis, but they have no way to do it. And we've
2: seen more and more data being made available. So one of
1: the great things,
2: I think, is this kind of open source data. I mean, you know, we're opening up data sets for people to to play with, create these applications around uh, was talking this, this morning about in San Francisco. Uh, the city is now instrumenting the parking spots. So you can actually now, there's an app that when I'm driving in San Francisco, I can find out, you know, the closest open parking meter. Uh, instead of driving, now it saves the city a lot of money with the cut down on pollution and carbon emissions and everything else like that. And not only did they make the app available and do all the sensor, um, you know, instrumentation and everything else, but they make the data set available. So that means now anybody else can develop an app that uses that. So it might be, you know, somebody who's trying to do route planning uh, for, for delivery systems, or they want to be able to say, where should I open up a restaurant? Well, where, where are the least amount of parking spots at any given time? There's a lot of other uses of that data. So so back to this notion of a graph, I think where, where things are gonna end up, because of data gravity, you want to be close to the data. If what you're, the question you're asking is involves lots of different data sets. Now you maybe have to have agents that essentially go out, and this computer science talked about this for a while, Send out the agents which will go be closer to behalf. data, answer it on your behalf, and bring back then that's the, the information instead of the data.
0: Yeah, wow. I mean, that's you know, and it's so interesting that you're both giving these very real world practical examples. Well, we and
2: probably th- read the same science fiction writers <laughs> that they, they explained this all many years <laughs> no, ago. <that's> right.
0: <laughs> we just should have done. Literature is obviously it's been a right. theme this week. It's been the was metaverse all was- along. <laughs> <old. laughs> <laughs> So as you have these conversations internally and externally with customers, how are you bringing some of these practical applications to bear? I mean, again, I love these kind of very um, personalized examples because I think that makes this very conceptual thing practical for for people. What do you, what kinds so of So Let me
2: give you another example. So um, a large um, agri-company in the agricultural space, you know, which is, um, planting seeds, and combines, in fact, are collecting information every every time they go down the field. Um, engaging, I had a conversation with the CEO of that company, or whatever, going, what are you doing with the data? Oh, it's so hard to get, we can't get our, the farmers, you know, they have to put in a USB key and then go to their their, their granddaughter's, ch- you know, computer, whatever, try and upload. And I'm going, well, that can be solved, just put in wireless sensors and everything else like that on your on your combine. Oh yeah, but then nobody really wants the data. And I said, well, if you could have the data, would you have an opportunity there? He said, oh yeah, it would be great. We could tell them exactly what time to plant. We could tell them exactly what seeds to use and everything else like that. But, we'd, we, but we're not in the application business. I'm going, well, you're in an ecosystem. But no one's building those apps. And I pulled out my iPhone. I hadn't done this before. Typed in like agricultural stuff. And sure enough, there are like 35 apps available today on, on an iPhone that was a shock to him to say here's how a business opportunity directly suited to what that guy can do. You have to start thinking in, in this way and then you'll there's plenty of opportunity.
0: And it's interesting, the thing I'm also noticing is that one of the advantages of working this new flexible way is that you are able to leave room for questions that are yet unasked, that you are creating opportunity, and, mm-hmm, and that concept mm-hmm. of you, if you don't harden the data so much that you, with a pre presupposed set of questions, then you're able to to ask questions and react. I, I would say yeah. I, I can see that the risk factor there, too, is we've seen some of these failures as, as it goes forward. Um, I, I'm curious how do you how do you talk through those conversations as we have those you know certain systems go down you can't watch the movie you want to watch you know we won't name names here but people that fear of the cloud how do you uh, because I feel like we have to have the failures to be able to compensate and ask the next well, we, we questions. learn by failure yeah
2: you, you 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 learn resiliency by the good thing about the cloud or anything like running at scale on Amazon is almost every corner case will be explored mm-hmm. you couldn't have tested for it in advance and so I think we have to be Design systems that fail gracefully. Hard mm-hmm. failures are, are forbidden in this world. You have to be able
1: to gracefully degrade. So. I love
0: that phrase. Fail gracefully. So, so I think, I think,
1: I think that's true. But at the same time, um, while we are overall uh, intolerant when we can't watch a a movie we really want to see, um, the reality is um, you in a perfect world would want your car to never break down right. ever it would, you could drive it a limitless number of miles uh, you would want your electricity service to never ever go right. out no matter what happens and we live we through those just fine that's right and they're not going away um, at least not with any technology we've seen so far so to expect that the movie service that you happen to watch will never ever ever right. fail uh, is silly they're you know, they, we have medical devices that fail. I think if we could pick something mm-hmm. that we'd all want to have mm-hmm. as most mm-hmm. important to never fail, mm-hmm. I, I would probably pick the medical devices first. Yep. <laughs> they still yep. have Over problems. The they sti- <laughs> that's right. They still fail. So uh, so it's interesting that people are so intolerant of not being able to watch that latest mm-hmm. movie, um, and, and yet they're tolerant of their car breaking down or their electricity going out during a storm. Or, and this
2: is why, um, I mean, we're lucky. I mean, humans are resilient that way
1: i mean and actually
2: Alistair this morning was talking about you know organ, an organ organization versus an organism mm-hmm. and that when you talk and so we talk about the human organisms we're tremendously resilient uh, i remember actually during the power outage in new york city a number of years ago entire city blacked out you know what did people do they immediately on their own without any direction, they checked all the elevators in their buildings, they went around the street and they helped their neighbors. In New York City, you know, one of the, quote, you know, most, you know, uh, uncooperating, un- you know, uh, city in the world or whatever, but they all responded. And so I think you're right. We are going to live in a world in which there are going to be issues and problems and, and things like that, but we have, we have to show the resiliency ourselves in how we respond.
0: So... Thinking about these conversations as we talk about now and where the history, where where do you rank cloud in terms of its maturity? Are we in Are we in the adolescence? Are we in the uh, How mature is cloud and, and adoption? And again, broad question, but so
2: we're we're certainly at just the beginning of this, and it probably won't be called cloud forever, I agree. because I think it'll just disappear <laughs> and become computing. It'll be accepted. Again, we'll be in it'll a be accepted world. just like this yeah. thing. But I mean, I think we already know some things about it. We know it is clearly the fastest way to develop and deploy new applications when the people who are developing the apps they don't have to worry about is the infrastructure is going to be the, or what kind of a machine it's going to run on or anything else they get that flexibility so we're seeing we that's apps I think there's probably the studies haven't been done yet but I would say without a doubt that is the preferred way to, to develop and deploy applications um, there's issues you know there's you know, latent fears about the cloud? You know, security or who's going to have access to my data? Uh, can I run my application in the same data center as a competitor of mine? Will I have access to that? One by one, we're knocking those down. And so when I was at Salesforce.com, for example, many years ago, one of the first questions was, you know, you know security data. How do you how do I protect my data? Now it became much more, can I protect you to be the steward of my data? You know, will you be around Salesforce? Uh, because I'm going to now entrust you with
1: this, um. which is interesting. It, it goes back though to uh, to an example I used the other day, which was the banking system and your trust in them taking care of your yeah. money. Um, you know, once you go in and give your cash to the bank teller and they take it and say, "Okay, it's been deposited," you're now fully trusting that they that your money's there. Where there is, you really don't know, and you're expecting that when you then uh, demand your money out, whether it via ATM or through another teller or something else, that you're actually going to be able to get it out. But you really don't know. Right. You don't truly right. know. They could say, "Oh, we don't have any record of that." And that's right. Good luck. That's right. That's right. So this is a tech talk that we're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah.
0: No, no. Seeing if we had any uh, questions yeah. coming in from our users because uh, we're we're about at time, and I wanted to see. Um, with both of you here, if you had a question you wanted to ask each other, if there's anything you both got to hear. the yeah, There's keynotes. I know there were some great yeah, so, conversations. Okay, so I get,
2: get that. So what's, <laughs> what do you, what's what are the challenges in big data and data gravity? I mean, we seem to be taking a lot of different approaches. Is there something that you think is I mean, earlier amongst the stuff we were talking more as physics? or and, and are, sure. are, are there some fundamental
1: things that we have to worry about here? I think... Uh, I think where it will get interesting is uh, when we move to real-time systems. And as we move to real-time systems, um, I think we're going to end up with uh, with kind of a compute arms race in the long term mm-hmm. of who can get to the information the quickest and who has access to the best resources in real-time to take whatever action it is. Mm-hmm. And that company... Um, will be incredibly advantaged, and I think the earliest example uh, that I can come up with of, uh, of companies fighting this battle are, uh, are in the uh, financial services, specifically uh, if you look at the stock trades and such. They are They spend incredibly large sums of money to be advantaged by a single single microsecond. Mm -hmm. They Mm -hmm. all have the same algorithms. They're constantly trying to come up with an algorithm that can extract more insightful information out of the data of a trade. And then they try and mask their activities so that the others cannot see it. That's the most (laughs) evolved example I can give. Most businesses will end up evolving to something like that in their own industry. It probably won't be quite that extreme, but it will be something along those lines, and that's where big data is going to take us. Yeah. It's going to take a while, so I'm not saying in five years from now we're all going to be doing this. But, but 20 years from now? Speed of light, yeah. distance, that's right. that data has to travel,
2: or you know, the, the, our response, I mean, actually the – Can you observe something happening at
1: a distance and make make an intelligent response around it in time? That's right. Well, and they had that recently, uh, that breakthrough in fiber where we can actually transmit the data faster through fiber. Mm -hmm. Well, so what do you think all these financial services companies are gonna wanna do? They're gonna be rerunning fiber because that's a huge advantage and and all of them will have to do it to stay competitive. Yeah, yeah. And one of the ways that, um, even on the networking side
2: where you start advantaging that is that you're again making decisions in the network because you don't have time to sort of go back to your data center and make a lot of these decisions. So being able to, particularly in, in these very sense time sensitive applications, you have to be able to have those local feedback loops happening right there on the, on the edge of the network.
0: Um. Uh, we, got a, yeah. uh, we got a viewer question, so um, Dave, do you plan to build something that shows how data gravity theory can work? And uh, it's a two-parter, and uh, Lou, application that might have for OpenStack? So it's a two for interesting. one. Interesting. <laughs> uh,
1: so my, uh, so I intend on putting together a what I'll call a very poorly coded, uh, because I do not claim to be the uh, rock star uh, uh, with my code, but I, I do plan on putting together a reference uh, bit of code to show how this should work, uh, so that hopefully people vastly better at coding and smarter than I can turn it into some very interesting projects and. and Uh, real things. Uh, Those are some of my plans in my infinite amounts of spare time that I have right now. So when you do that, Dave,
2: I can make sure that we can actually express a blueprint in in OpenStack and see if we can get uh, others to contribute code along with you. I think one of the things that we find as as we're forming these open source communities around these things and OpenStack is is a set of services. It's not designed as a monolithic thing. It's a set of services and we keep adding more services as we discover the need for them or the possibility of developing them. And so I think that that's exactly the kind of thing we'd like to see.
0: Well, listeners, you heard it here first, so we'll be looking for more from that. And, and Dave, as a closer, do you have a question for Lou? Anything you want to, well, besides when can you, you know, <laughs> leverage OpenStack for this?
1: Sure. Uh, so I guess my question would be, where do you see the future of network uh, networking going based on the fact of all of these pulls around, uh, around data gravity and such? Sure.
2: I actually... It, it almost comes back to where we started, is that we are, there's always been this debate that we either want networking to become just really fast and, and dumb, uh, or do we want it to be more intelligent. And more intelligent to me means we're pushing actually computation and computing ability into the network, and I am firmly on the side that we need more and more intelligence in the network. Uh, and that's why we're seeing SDN and everything as programmable, so now you have to be able to actually put programs that are running on your routers and switches or network elements uh, so you can start to turn it into services. So that means that we'll become, we've talked about you know, content-aware networking, we've talked about application-aware networking, I think we're gonna start to see those things. If we can get the right abstraction, what we need to do that right, you really need to move up a level and start talking about the abstractions that you want implemented, and then it becomes pretty straightforward how you go and build that into the network.
0: Well, great conversation. Thank you so much, Lou, thank you, Dave. And uh, we're out of time for this week. So if you like the show, um, add some knowledge to the data. You can uh, tell people and bring. Let the gravity pull you in. So you can uh, tell a friend, leave us a review on on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at thecloudcast.net or on the web at thecloudcast.net. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.